Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we are going to take a look at something that most of us have probably been hearing about for a long time. Christians, in America especially, have put a huge emphasis on the institution of the family. Many Christian organizations prominently place the word family in the titles of their ministries. You may be familiar with one of the largest evangelical groups, which is called Focus on the Family. And as the barrier between the church and the political sphere has broken down, we constantly hear a drumbeat of quote-unquote family-centered viewpoints stemming from right-wing media. For evangelicals, the family is at the center of what a Christian's life should be all about. They put a huge emphasis on defining what a true Christian family is and exactly how it should function. The goal for any evangelical parent is to have boys that grow up to start their own families and daughters who will make good Christian wives. This is actually the primary way that Christians perpetuate the church through the generations. For all the emphasis we hear about evangelism and outreach, it's interesting that in America the main way the church grows is simply through the family. In the Bible, the Old Testament displays many different portrayals of the family, some quite dysfunctional or even horrific by modern standards, but also some that are very much in line with what American evangelicals consider to be a traditional family. But I think many people will be surprised to read what the Bible has to say in the New Testament. The view of families there is very different and even shocking. It definitely doesn't fit with what evangelicals have been preaching at us. So today we're going to take a look at some of these New Testament passages and see what Jesus has to say and what the Apostle Paul has to say about the family. And Ben, I think some Bible-believing Christians might be shocked to hear some of this. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of fascinating. Um, growing up in church, you're confronted a lot when it comes to family with uh, passages from the Old Testament and certainly the Old Testament idea um, that would have been the sort of ideology of the people that Jesus was first going to preach to um, was that the most fundamental role in your formative years was the role of your parents in raising you and that, you know, you were to respect your parents' authority and that even cursing your parents could be a crime that was punishable by death um, and certainly would be um, considered completely unacceptable. And I think that the cultural ideas of family values are derived a lot from uh, the Old Testament um, but you didn't hear a lot of discussion about what the New Testament actually says about family. We wanted to kind of let some of the New Testament speak for itself and um, look at some passages and um, not make any type of comment necessarily on whether we agree or disagree with the passage or trying to draw a larger theology, but just sort of as a way to question some of the basic assumptions of this kind of culture of family values that we all assume would be part of the New Testament as well. Yeah, I think um, when I started looking into this for this episode, I was really surprised because I figured, okay, it's probably going to be one of these issues where, yes, the point we're going to, we're going to get to, uh, spoiler alert, is that the New Testament is actually not very family-friendly at all. And I thought that when we we're going to get into that, okay, th this verse is going to kind of support 
support the idea of the the family values that we're all familiar with but then this verse is going to kind of speak against it but shockingly when you read the new testament um almost every verse about the family is more about the destruction of the family and the fact that the family is bad and um and i think the new testament is radically changing the idea of family so is it okay if uh, we start diving in a little bit to the actual verses? I think that would be great. Okay, so this one comes from Luke. Um, if anyone comes to me, and this is Jesus speaking, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So this is in a section where Jesus is um, going through a bunch of parables and he goes through several different parables. And then this, in this verse, Luke uh, fourteen twenty six, he kind of breaks out of the parable to give a little bit of an explanation of what that parable is about and what these parables are about. Um, now, the interesting thing to me here is that it doesn't say if anyone comes to me and does not hate his unbelieving father and mother, it just basically says, hate his own father and mother and wife and children. So the idea that you have Jesus explicitly commanding his followers to hate, I think would be a surprising thing for most people to hear. And it's definitely not something that is focused on in uh, any sermon that I've ever heard. Um, but it goes on. So that's, that's in Luke. Um, what does he say in Matt? What does Jesus talk about in Matthew? Well, in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So now, you know, for like using scripture to interpret scripture, which is what evangelicals love to say now we're looking at both matthew and luke which seems to be talking about your household your family members are now your enemies um now we can try to parse it out and and dig into why that is and maybe maybe put some caveats on that but one thing we certainly can't do is say that this is expressing some kind of uh, wholesome american family values that we've all grown up with yeah, it's fascinating. I think that both of these passages should be taken at face value at first so that you can have a sense of like the jarring nature of what he's actually saying. And I think especially in the context where he's speaking in uh, Jewish Palestine, they would have realized how radical these words are um, since their their whole system partially was based on uh, family authority and parental authority. Um right. So to challenge that, but to say that you need to hate your own mother and father would be almost like a capital offense or could have been a capital offense um, at certain times uh, in uh, Jewish culture. So um, right. that's a, an amazingly radical thing to be saying. And then, again, the same thing um, in Matthew, where he is um, directly, again, talking about families being divided against each other. You know, it's Jesus drawing a line through, directly through family values, directly through the family uh, structure. But let's let's keep uh, looking. Yeah, I mean, um, this one to me really stood out. Uh, Matthew twenty three verse nine, and it, it's Jesus again, um, kind of giving a command here. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Uh, that really stood out. I've never once heard a Christian say, don't call your earthly father, father. Basically saying, like, your earthly father is not your father. You only have one father, and that's your father in heaven. Um, that's radical. I mean, that's that, to me, completely blows apart this idea of the Christian family as, as we've all been taught, um, our whole lives. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's a challenge to, uh, familial 
uh, authority, basically, because um, you're taking the father figure and you're saying that that person is not who you recognize. You recognize uh, God, who's your real father. Um, and and again, the fascinating thing about these commandments are they're so much more explicit than some things that have created entire doctrines um, oh, that really have been inferred point. like through scripture. But people will do whatever they can to obfuscate from having to confront what these passages are really saying. And there's no real theology built around these. I mean, I was even reading Calvin's commentary on the hate your mother and father, and he was extremely troubled <laughs> by the wording in that. And, you, and of course he was. I mean, he was a huge proponent of uh, family authority and, uh, and fatherly authority. I can only imagine what his commentary would have said on uh, Matthew 23. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point you made about the amount of, if I think about it, the amount of doctrines that um, we've been taught sitting in church for many years that really don't have a very good biblical basis for, or at least it's kind of obscure, or kind of weak. I mean, I remember sermon after sermon about tithing in church, about how we should be giving 10% of our income to the church. And um, this is, I mean, this comes from the Old Testament ancient Israel, and there's nothing like this in the New Testament about the Christian church going forward. Um, and in fact, there is actually text about um, how the finances should be distributed in churches, but it has nothing to do with the tithe whatsoever. Yet they feel very comfortable about preaching this, you know, really, according to them, airtight doctrine of tithing, that this is just something that we should all do. Uh, another one comes to mind is the Sabbath, how, um, I mean, the Old Testament, it's very clear in the Ten Commandments, um, the Fourth Commandment, the the seventh day is the Sabbath day, like, and it's the seventh day for a reason. It's the seventh day because that's the day that God rested in creation. And it's like, you know, Christians love to talk about how the Ten Commandments still apply and we should put the Ten Commandments up in the schools and in the courthouses and everywhere. Yet, the ten, like most Christians, think that Sunday is the Sabbath day. Uh, if they're a Sabbatarian Christian, the, the church that I grew up was Sabbatarian. Um, and they would give you, if you really got into the theology of that, a very convoluted long answer about how the new Sabbath day is now the Lord's day. And this is not something that's very clearly taught anywhere in the New Testament. It's kind of derived. Um, but this teaching about family is very clear. It's all over the New Testament. We just went, went through Luke. I can give you several verses in Luke, several verses in Matthew. These are the Gospels. And here's a verse in Mark. Um, it says, And his mother and brothers came to him, they came to Jesus, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered to them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So once again, he's basically saying your local family, your bloodline family does not even exist anymore. What your new family is now this brotherhood in Christ. Um and um, I also think we don't have to go down this road, but I think it, it fits in with and we'll talk about it on future episodes, but with an adoptionalist philosophy, the idea that um, Jesus was actually adopted by God. Um, and uh, there is some, you know, that was a controversy in the very early church. And it's really fascinating to get into that. But that would fit right alongside of this, where it's really not your bloodline family that matters. It's your it's your Christian brotherhood that matters. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you want to look at the historical meaning of, of what he's saying or what the authors are saying, I think that that's ultimately um, part of the historical message that they're, they're trying to send is that, um, you know, this community of new believers, your family may not be supportive, that your real family now is the community of believers, and the Lord will be returning soon because I think that a lot of these writers or most of them were expecting Jesus's eminent return. Um, 
so I think it was partially to formulate this new community that wasn't based on bloodlines. But I think that part of it is uh, extremely appealing. I like to like sort of secularize it and look at it as a revolutionary community that is that has a way to stand up against uh, racism or um, you know valuing your own kind uh over others and being able to love your enemy and uh and care for your neighbor um i can also see the way that to look at a religion and think about it in its formative days and to um that this concept is not that surprising either um if you look at cults or alternative religious movements when they're forming i mean you're supposed to separate from your family you're supposed to not talk to family members again anymore you're supposed to replace those bonds with the bonds of your new community of brothers and sisters so to find these kind of ideas in um, these early Christian texts is also not surprising from that pers perspective. But I think th that's all kind of parenthetical to our overall point, which again, it, this is just radically different than the doctrine of family that's preached or the cottage industry that is sort of arose around family values. And I mean, nobody is trying to put up you must hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters in school on a plaque, you know, <laughs> exactly, like right. the Ten Commandments. No one is saying don't call your no one on your your earth is your father. Your father is only in heaven um, on a plaque in schools or um, it or that, you know, we're going to turn uh, your family members against each other uh, because I came to bring the sword and not peace. Um, these are just like hard sayings that are not, that are uncomfortable to deal with, uh, especially if you believe that every word of scripture is supposed to be for, uh, your devotional instruction. I, I mean, I think these are t difficult things to, um, to deal with the meaning of. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to, I mean, most, if you are to read the literature from, a ministry like Focus on the Family, most of uh, what they'll use as a precedent for uh, family values and the bloodline traditional family that we all know is the Old Testament. I mean, they'll talk about um, in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, this idea of the covenant working through families from Adam to um, Abraham. Uh, up until modern day. And of course, modern day Jews, they take great pride in this this familial bloodline that they're connected to. Um, but I think that a clearer message from the New Testament is that Jesus is kind of abolishing that and saying, no, now we're getting away from this bloodline and we're going out into the Gentile world and your family connection no no longer matters. It, you could make it more extreme and say um, your family, that bloodline family is now your enemy. So, th so that kind of leads me into my next point. So we've, we've been talking about the gospels here. Ma we've quoted from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, and basically um, they are, in my view, explicitly anti-family. I, I don't think you can really find anything in them that are, that is really pro-family in the way that modern uh, evangelicals would consider a pro-family. And then the question becomes, well, why is that? And you, Ben, you, you touched on this just a little bit. But I think if we look at these books in the context, I think it makes total sense. So if you're the author of Matthew, who may have been somebody named Matthew, but likely it was not, um, you are writing to a Jewish audience that you're trying to persuade, you're trying to get them to become Christian. And so if you look at Matthew in particular, and we'll talk about this a lot on future episodes, I'm sure, Matthew's constantly trying to make connections to the Old Testament. In fact, he's, he's saying, he's claiming that all of these things that Jesus has done or that happened in Jesus' life is the fulfillment of prophecy from Old Testament. Um, many times he does this in bizarre ways that has scholars to this day scratching their head about how he made that connection. But clearly, he's that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to take people in Jewish culture and convert them to become Christians. And 
I'm sure that one of the biggest problems he would have run into is people saying, well, no, my family would kill me if I ever, if I ever, you know, went with Jesus, if I ever went with these Christians. So it, it makes sense to me that this author is saying, abandon that family and embrace this new brotherhood going forward. So I think, I don't know if you agree with me, Ben, but I think that that's kind of a good explanation anyway as to why we have Jesus saying these types of things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's it's always kind of complicated to parse out um, Jesus's words because we don't have Jesus's actual words. We have what authors attributed to him. So I think that we've shown that at least the gospel writers had um, a similar idea of uh, Jesus sort of abolishing the family relation um, since we saw it as a common theme, not just in one gospel, but in uh, the synoptics. But I, I think it totally makes sense that you would have in that context where people are converting um, and are dealing with the strain of family relations anyway. And the focus is not on building a long-term future in the world. I think that their focus was apocalyptic in, in a certain extent, or at least certain communities were. But I, but I think the basic thing is you had people that were converting that um, were estranged from their family or had strained relationships to their family. And these verses were showing them that your new family is now this community of believers, that family relations um, don't matter that there's a new family uh, that is in Christ and that, you know, this comes from Christ. Yeah, and I, I think that this is a, we're kind of touching on a little bit, is like a major tension in the entire New Testament, which is this whole idea of um, what do we do with the old traditions? And clearly family was, was the, the old Jewish tradition. And you see this all over the epistles of Paul and then, you know, into James dealing with, well, what do we do with the law? Do, you know, what do we do with circumcision? Um, these are huge controversies at the time, which now um, they're not as applicable to modern society. We don't, there's not a lot of debates going on now about it within churches anyway, about circumcision Um or or what do we do with the law? I mean, it's but at the time coming out of a, a Jewish world in Jerusalem, really right right around the time of the fall of Jerusalem in AD seventy, when these these books were written, right around that time. So you're talking about a major disruption in history, and um, I think what you see a lot in the New Testament is kind of like you know wrestling with all those issues, and I think this family issue is kind of another example of that. But that leads me right into, so we've talked about the the uh, Gospels. Let's talk a little bit about the Epistles. Maybe Paul, who um, is the primary author of the New Testament, maybe he has something different to say about family. Maybe he's very pro-family. Well, if you read in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about marriage and virginity. And he, t he basically says it's better not to get married. Um, he looks at marriage as a concession. If you were going to, if you really couldn't stay chaste and, and uh, stay a virgin, then marriage was literally a concession. It actually uses that word, basically saying like, if you're not strong enough, if you're, if you're the weaker brother, you can go ahead and get married, but it's really not the best thing. And what about giving your children in marriage? Well, it says the man who gives his daughter in marriage does well, but the man who does not give his daughter in marriage does better. So it, it just makes me think of all these Christians that say that the primary way that, that we're going to spread the gospel, the primary way that God wants to deliver his messages through families and through family values. Well, if that's the case, why is the Apostle Paul basically saying, it's better not to get married, it's, it's better uh, not to give your daughters in marriage? To me, it completely blows that out of the water. So the entire, you know, Doug Wilson theonomy movement, the entire um, covenantal movement that God, God is working through families in America to build up his church. And I mean, you can, you can make that 
a case using the Old Testament, but I'm sorry, Jesus and the Apostle Paul completely destroy that. And um, I can't find a single passage in the New Testament that would support that type of theology. Yeah, I mean, Paul is basically, uh, like you said, looks at, at marriage as a concession. Like his focus is not on the worldly things at all. Um, his entire focus is on the mission. And basically he's like, whatever holds you back from that mission, you need to get rid of it and just continue to um, be unfettered by the things of this world. And I think that um, it, on, on one hand, these verses are fascinating, but I think the more fascinating thing is how different they are from the prevailing notion. And I know there's a whole cottage industry based on uh, training yourself to be a good Christian wife so that you can be a complementarian to your husband and, you know, raising children and that a father's main duty with his daughter is to raise her up to be a good Christian wife. And it's like Paul is saying almost the exact opposite. He's basically saying, you know, your job should be raising daughters that it would be better for them even not to get married. Um, it's a very, like, revolutionary idea. It's just to not be held down to be unfettered by anything, to be not attached so that you can be fully yeah um engaged in the cause yeah i mean this idea not to get too much into politics but so much of the political right in this country is based on this christian values notion and so much of it has to do with you know the roles that that god has created god has created male and female and these role and these each of these has like their own role in society and you can go on and talk about how women are supposed to be submissive to men and um but i think i think the a clearer reading again of the new testament would in many cases abolish that you have galatians again paul and galatians there can be neither Jew nor Greek. This is Galatians 3.28. There can be neither bond nor free. There can be no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, again, like not to get too much into like what we like and dislike, but that would be a verse that I would I would identify with. I like the idea that all of these things that are dividing us and separating us, no, we are all one. Um, to me, that's that's a progressive view of of the new Testament that um, I could be more in favor of. But again, there are certainly verses that I think would discount this, especially when you get into the pastoral epistles of um, Paul and first and second Timothy, where I think it has some very bizarre verse verses that are pretty explicitly anti-woman that wouldn't go along with this, but at least um, in a genuine book of Paul here in Galatians, um, it, you know, I think it's a very progressive view that, you know, if you're going to design your own Christianity, which is what really most Christians do. I mean, I, I think we're, we can make the case that most Christians are cherry picking um, verses that to support the type of Christianity they want. Um, and if you were going to do that, most people don't choose this verse. Most people don't choose the these other verses that we read in, in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Yeah, I think that this would make the short list for most emancipatory potential for a verse in the Bible. Although so a lot of the verses that we're talking about today, I think, have huge emancipatory potential. I mean, I think like Paul is essentially I wanted to at some point do a study of the Pauline, the genuine letters of Paul, we'll call them, and their timeline versus the New Testament writers and to see and try and maybe do some reading on if there are people that have thought about the influence that he had maybe on one gospel writer over another or mm. uh, different traditions. Cause I feel like it would be interesting to see, but this seems to be saying the same thing that we're reading in the gospels that there's a new community. It's not based on any of these worldly relations. All these power relations in the world are totally obliterated when you're in this community. He goes back and forth between like each like uh, each pole. So he's got slave and free, like uh, Greek and Jew, uh, male and female, and um, and then basically just says no, no difference. 
Like there are no differences in Christ. Like all of that is gone. And I think that it's saying the same thing essentially that we've read in these other passages that, you know, these, these old relations are not important anymore. These old relations were cutting right through these old relations in order to form a new community that's not based on who you're born to or who's closest to you genetically or what your station is in life um, or um, any of that. It's based on a total equality while you're in this body. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit, you mentioned a little bit uh, when we were talking about the Gospels about how the eminent return of Christ is kind of like looming over all of this. And I think, you know, in the Gospels, it talks about how um, some of Jesus' own disciples will still be alive when Jesus returns. And I think there's no way to read the epistles of Paul without thinking the same thing. I mean, what what are the reason? What would be one of the reasons that Paul is saying, "Don't get married," and and uh, and it's better um, not to give your daughters in marriage? And I think that I think that all over Paul is this concept of like just hunker down and stay faithful because Jesus is going to be returning any day. Paul says, "I say therefore to the unmarried." and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep, those will rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she, she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So, again, if you, if you look closely there, he talks about how the time is short. And um, this is looming over all of Pauline literature, all the genuine letters of Paul in my mind. I, I think you're right. Paul is interesting because very little systematic theology comes from Jesus or from the words that we have from Jesus, I would say. Most of it comes from Paul. Paul systematizes everything. But really, the reality is I think that's a misreading of Paul because I think that Paul is not really concerned with the systematic theology. I think Paul is concerned with the imminent return of Jesus. and. Right. To read him in any other way, I think you you miss his in, uh, initial and like central message, which is basically like prepare the way because, or like you said, hunker down because the time is coming soon. Like the Christians were suffering at that point in time. Um, they were trying to expand the church. It was the early days of Christianity. Um, they weren't a strong movement that was statewide. They didn't have the Roman Empire behind them. They were a bunch of uh, converts that were trying to make it in the world. Um, and they believed that the Lord is returning soon. And I think that that's the context that we should be reading um, what Paul is saying. Um, yeah, and there's a lot more evidence of this in Paul. And we'll definitely do a future episode about um, the eminent return of Jesus being the driving factor behind the New Testament uh, or much of the New Testament. And, um, and then even how the New Testament deals with the fact that Christ didn't return when we'll get into first uh, and second Peter. Um, and there's some very interesting stuff on that, but it's, that's a little far afield from this other than to say, if we're looking for explanations as to why this seemingly anti-family as we know it, anti-bloodline family um, teaching seems to be permeating through the New Testament. I think, I think that really does shed a lot of light on, on why that is. And I think it also sheds a light on why you don't 
hear people preaching this anymore because the historical mm. context is so different now that yeah. there's not there's the Christianity is not a marginalized group. They're not struggling for survival. Like I said, if you went to a, a meeting of uh, a fledgling cult or something like that, you'd be much more likely to hear a message like this. Probably that's a really um, good point because that's a great point. because they're marginalized. They're struggling. They're trying to survive. And Christianity has sort of shifted its apocalyptic focus. So they're reading Paul in a totally different way that like the stuff that they're reading in Paul and in Jesus is not the same thing that may have been more central during the early days of Christianity. And I think that's just probably an overarching theme too, that we'll continue to, to explore. Um, yeah. I think that it's just um, you're not going to hear a message on this because it's, it's not necessarily necessary for a christian to be single in order to uh you right. know to be able to hunker down and survive yeah i think that's just an excellent point and i think that like um again we're probably going to return to this theme a lot but the this idea that people are without realizing it the church is kind of designing itself based on the culture that they're in currently and some of these things just are not relevant or helpful at all to the culture that they're in so they just don't talk about it um and uh that's why you know looking at the bible from kind of a non-church perspective looking at it from outside of the church and saying well what do these words actually say what do these verses actually say what did jesus actually say or or at least as uh, we're being told he said and it's often that we'll find that wow this is totally surprising this is not at all what i've been taught my whole life this is not at all what most people even think christianity is um, but yet it's there in black and white and um you know they would people would look at you um as if you're saying a heresy if you told them that jesus says to hate your family or jesus says no don't call your earthly father your father they would look at you like you have two heads in your and almost like like you're preaching some kind of satanic message but no you're actually just quoting jesus and uh very clearly and in context you can't really make the argument oh i'm taking it out of context and what you know they will try to parse it out well what jesus jesus he says hate your hate your family but he doesn't really mean that i'm like okay you're just saying that but i mean it <laughs> yeah uh, i mean that very i think like that's fine in good faith i can accept that somebody gets to that place but i think that you do a disservice to yourself and to the words that we have attributed to jesus if you just jump immediately to like well he just means you know, love God more than you love your family. Because, right. like, he doesn't say that. He could easily just say that. He says, hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters. So I think that dealing with that in a, at a literal level first, and then you can try to parse out what he means by it. I mean, I think it's interesting to, one, try to read the, um, the Bible as it's written to the people that it was written to historically. And then you can also see how culture... Um, dictates interpretation if you look at how um, different things were interpreted throughout history too so you know you have times where the family is um, interpreted in different ways and I think roles are are changing um, throughout Christian history I mean a, a lot of the traditional way of um, thinking about husbands and wives, uh, comes from an emphasis that starts happening during the Reformation. So there's just like, there's a, a fascinating history behind even how um, certain things get emphasized and certain things sort of get pushed to the side. Right. The disturbing thing about the um, hating your mother and father is you would think that it would get a little more play than it does since it's like literally a requirement for someone to be a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what struck me about it is that it, it's, it's just a command. It's yeah. not like a, um, it's not part of a parable. It's actually Jesus explaining that, Oh, by the way, what this parable means is you need to hate your family. I mean, that's basically what it's saying. Yeah. And um, it's just striking with a lot of things that we'll talk about on this podcast going forward. We're going to talk about how, you can't just assume that the whole Bible or the whole New Testament is saying the same thing. We can't just assume that Paul and James uh, are teaching the same message. That's what inerrancy teaches. Inerrancy teaches there, there's no contradictions, and there's definitely no contradictions in theology and in teaching. Um, but but 
I think those contradictions are all over the place and we'll get into that. But I actually think there's even more that we didn't even really touch on to further bolster our point. I mean, I, what comes to mind also is how Jesus would change the name of his disciples. Um, you know, um, Cephas became Peter, uh, Saul became Paul, obviously after Jesus and the vision, but it's, the idea is basically like, no, this, this bloodline familial name that has been given to you, I'm totally eradicating that. And I'm going to rename you because now your new family is this brotherhood in Christ. And, and I think if you research it further, we could even come up with um, more examples of this. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. Okay, I have not read these verses yet. Neither one of us is aware of the answer. Um, This is totally cold. All right. Verse number one. But since you refuse to listen when I call, and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. Okay. Verse number two. For with much wisdom comes much contentment. The more knowledge, the more joy. The greater my wisdom, the greater my rejoicing. To increase knowledge only increases joy. Okay. All right. Verse three. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And finally, verse 4. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Okay, all of these sound very, very biblical. So I'm assuming that what she did here is alter. One of these verses has to be altered from a real verse. That's my guess. She pulled an old Bible uh, copyist trick. Right. She mixed a couple of verses together and it came out with something else that sounds like a verse. She's a modern day ecclesiastical redactor. Yeah, she's uh, pulling out all the uh, editorial tricks, like a real Deuteronomist. (laughs) Let's start with the first one. But since you refuse to listen when I call, and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. This is this is a pretty badass verse. This reminds me of something that um, uh, Samuel L. Jackson would say in yeah, Pulp Fiction. it's like a Tarantino verse, right? Yeah, I, I have to think. I don't know. I think it might be real only because it's like, okay, so I'm going to use textual criticism to figure okay. this out. This seems to be so outlandish. I mean, laughing when disaster strikes you and mock when calamity overtakes you, that I think that it must be real. Like, this would be a bad fake. Originally, I was thinking this one's the fake, but now I've changed my mind. I think it's actually the real one, or one of the real ones. I'm going to say uh, it's real for now, but I want to I want to kind of like dissect the rest of them before, because I still think it's possible this is the... Yeah, she definitely combined verses, because... <laughs> All of these unless she's up. unless she's like inspired by God and like maybe she's like a prophetess. She's because, a psalmist, maybe. Because I mean, if she didn't, if she didn't uh, 
take a verse and alter it and this is just you know streaming out of her brain like this is definitely inspired yeah it would it would make me rethink my whole position right. in there yeah we would have to like completely change this podcast it would be like the believers project although she definitely needs an ecclesiastical redactor for that first verse because the theology seems kind of radical from to me yeah but again, I well, kind of like this. I mean, this verse to me is like one I'm going to... I hope I hope it's real because it's pretty it's, badass. It's definitely Calvinist in its uh, yeah. in theology. It's basically like, you reprobate, I will smite you with furious anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, those of you who have not watched Pulp Fiction, uh, yes, I um, highly recommend it. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. For with much wisdom comes much contentment. The more knowledge, the more joy. The greater my wisdom, the greater my rejoicing. To increase knowledge only increases joy. Again, it sounds very biblical. It's very um, straightforward. I have a ten. I'm I'm wondering though if the actual verse um, is kind of a surprising verse where. It's basically like the greater the wisdom, the more condemnation. Like, um, it's 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 a verse that's basically saying like, yeah, don't don't look to the wisdom of the world because it will only uh, destroy you. It was a verse. It was something similar to this. It was like, with great power comes great responsibility. No, that's Spider Man. Oh right, yeah, that's Spider Man. I yeah I mean at first I was thinking this is real but now I'm starting to think that it might be fake. Right. It just seems a little too Joel Olstein-ish. It's a lot of joy. It's a lot of uh I mean yeah and if it sounds like Joel Olstein it can't possibly be biblical so uh, yeah. Um be, Yeah, be I'm starting extremely to surprising. I'm starting to feel the same way, Ben. Let's see. Let's go on. Pray without ceasing. I know that is biblical. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God and Jesus Christ concerning you. I mean, I, 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 I have to think that's real. I feel like all three components of that are real, but are they real in that order? Yeah, I mean, she, I yeah. Like, or is she combined three different passages? <laughs> I'm going to say that that's real as well, because I know the pray without ceasing. I mean, all three components, I think, are from some sort of passages and everything give thanks obviously and for this is the will of christ jesus concerning you i think is it we either paul or pseudo paul right yeah i completely agree um okay last one who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good but even if you should suffer for what is right you are blessed do not fear their threats do not be frightened yeah i'm gonna say too is the fake yeah. I mean, there's so many ways. She did a good job. Diana, the producer, um, our producer, did a really good job because uh, I thought I would be able to do this relatively easily, and it's not as easy as I thought. I think she's making an, an ironic statement, and she changed something about uh, the second verse. Yeah. And um, that's my vote. What do you think? You're yeah, sticking with that? I, I think something about two is off, whether it's, um, yeah, either replacing words or... I don't think she made it up wholesale, but I think no, she... No, but if she did, I'm going to give her even more credit. So, no, so number two is the fake verse. Now I'm going to open up Diana's seal with a wax insignia. Oh, wow. And yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see... Can you do a drum roll? Uh, I don't think... Okay, done. No, that's terrible. Okay. Let's see. And she also, okay, so she has the references to the uh, to all the verses so we can oh, see. Oh, nice. Okay, so let's start with, we all agree on um, one, three, and four. So let's, let's start with number one. Um, but since you refuse to listen, okay, that's a real verse. It comes yes. from... Proverbs 1, 24 through 26. Man, Solomon must have been angry that day. Yeah, like I said, that's a, this is a cool verse in Proverbs. Um, I'm going to have to memorize this one. So the next one 
It's Ecclesiastes one eighteen, but it's oh fake. Yes. She the real verse. The Let's see. Yeah, see, Ecclesiastes would never say this nonsense. Let's it's probably see. like with much wisdom comes much misery or something, and knowledge comes desolation. Yeah, it's exactly, it's the exact opposite. So the real verse reads, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The yeah. more knowledge, the more grief. The greater, the, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's fascinating because yeah. I always liked Ecclesiastes, but I don't like the idea of not gaining more knowledge. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of a critique of ideology, I think. I, Ecclesiastes and Job are the two best books of the Bible. Fight me on it. Um, so that means the other two are also real? Yeah, we and... should... Uh, what are the references? Pray Without uh, Ceasing pray, is like... Pray like, Without Ceasing, we've all heard, and it is actually in this formulation. It's First Thessalonians 5, uh, 17, and 18. And then the last verse, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good, that comes from First Peter 3, 13 through 14. So again, thank you to Diana for putting this together, and uh, I hope everyone out there digs this segment and if so we will um, do it some more yeah to me that was actually a lot of fun um, yeah and again uh, great job diana um you almost fooled us but right. you know you can't fool the the skeptics you're gonna have to try harder yeah we've been dissecting this stuff for a while you gotta really bring your a game and now it's time for bible versus bible Okay, so welcome to Bible versus Bible, our newest segment where we analyze alleged contradictions in the Bible and try to determine if it's an actual contradiction or if there is any kind of way around it and what it means ultimately for the doctrine of inerrancy. Today, we have a very interesting one, I think, from the Gospel of John. Um, I got this from Bart Ehrman in his book, Jesus Interrupted. And Ben, tell us a little bit about who Bart Ehrman is, and then if you could read uh, the blurb about this contradiction. Yeah, Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar. He's a expert on the ancient texts in the original language. Um, and he's written a bunch of books uh, talking about the historical critical method. Um, and here's a quote from Jesus Interrupted. Um, one of my favorite apparent discrepancies, I read John for years without realizing how strange this one is, comes in Jesus's farewell discourse, the last address that Jesus delivers to his disciples at his last meal with them, which takes up all of chapters 13 to 17 in the gospel according to John. In John 13, 36, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? A few verses later, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. That's John 14, 5. And then a few minutes later, at the same meal, Jesus upbraids his disciples, saying, Now I'm going to the one who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? John 16, 5. Either Jesus had a very short attention span, or there's something strange going on, with the source for these chapters, creating an odd kind of disconnect. Yeah, this is unusual because um, we'll talk about contradictions a lot. And uh, most of the time, I think it's a contradiction, you know, between two gospels, maybe, maybe uh, Matthew and John uh, in an account of the resurrection where the details are different. This, what's interesting about it, it's in the, it's in the same book and in the same exact conversation it's um it just comes across as if jesus is completely aloof to what uh the disciples are saying um technically speaking this is not a contradiction i mean it's just saying what jesus said and he said something incorrect or he didn't hear but i think i think most people look at it as a contradiction because you assume that number one jesus wouldn't be saying something incorrect you wouldn't have the author of john uh 
quoting Jesus incorrectly, um, or or you wouldn't have Jesus saying something wrong. Uh, so you know, to Bart Ehrman's point, it, it's just kind of an odd disconnect, and I I don't I don't really have a good answer for it. So, just to kind of like set the stage um, in our mind, I mean, it's not that John is sitting there with a transcriber taking down the words and then writing down exactly how these conversations went post facto. Um, I mean, so John is already, you know, the, the author of the gospel of John is already selectively deciding what he's going to put in his story. So why put in something that is clearly, like you said, not even an internal contradiction to the conversation, but basically just, makes Jesus look like he's totally doesn't know what's going on or doesn't hear them. Um, unless there's some sort of a, either one, a purpose that that verse is supposed to convey that's part of John's message, which I don't think is abundantly or apparently clear to me, at least upon, you know, an initial reading or it's part of different fragments of this conversation that John, the author of John is putting together that's sort of like what Airman seems to be implying that it might be that the yeah. source documents are contradictory or confusing and that that's creating the narrative that comes from those source documents to be confusing. Um, but even then, if, if it's in the original text, then John could have taken it out of the original text to not make Jesus look like he was confused, which would make sense. Or an early scholar could have taken it out of the text for that same reason um, when they were doing the copying. So it's like strange that this exists. Like it, it's a problem for um, inerrancy or it's a problem for in Jesus's infallibility because one of the two can't survive this dialogue. I mean, either Jesus is like making a mistake or John is not writing what John is writing is not true. And so yeah, either one I, of those creates a problem for either Jesus's perfection or an inerrant scripture. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think that's ex I think that was exactly right. The uh, it really is. It's either a problem for the infallibility of Jesus or for the inerrancy of scripture. You know, is John the process of one author sitting down and writing the book from start to finish under the inspiration of God, or is it a kind of a process that, um, you know, one author in one community is writing and then you have, uh, as it's passed down, other scribes that are redacting and editing before we, we get it in the form that we have it now. We don't actually have a lot of incredibly early manuscripts of John, so it's really hard to say. Um, oftentimes, some of the reason why we end up with something like this is because um, it, someone did try to correct it, but scholars have said, no, the, the difficult reading is probably the more original reading or, um, because usually what you find is, um, the editors trying to fix these things as they go on. So I think even the fact that we have it in its current form, I think is, is fascinating. I would be interested to hear what like the Jesus seminar has come down on this about what they think was were genuine words of G, of the historical Jesus versus a kind of a literary construction. I mean, John is the latest gospel. Um, I believe, like the like most scholars, like the earliest they place it is like ninety A.D. and um, so this is written long after uh, Jesus and and uh, his disciples were alive. So. And so if you look at a passage like the conversation he has with Nicodemus, um, you know, it, like there's a there's a pun. And, and I want to talk about this on a future episode. We don't have to dig into it too much, but there's a pun about um, being born from above or being born again. And um, that only works in Greek. And Jesus didn't speak Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic. So this is obviously a literary construction of, of the words of Jesus. So if we take that and say, okay, it's likely that this conversation also is just a literary construction to make the theological point to the Johannian community that the author is uh, writing to, then um, it kind of makes more sense that, okay, this is, 
you know, this was probably like a literary construction and this is just kind of some kind of strange editing error that made it into the Bible as we know it now. But to me, this is humorous because, I mean, I can just picture Thomas and like Jesus saying, none of you have asked me where I'm going. And then Thomas and, and Peter just looking at each other like, uh, and then maybe add an extra verse. Like we literally just asked you that exact question, like both of us, like a minute ago. (laughs) Lord, that's like all we've been asking (laughs) for the last hour. It creates a comical scene. The Skeptic's Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.